Well, all right. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. And you come on back and you grab your Bibles. And we're about ready to start a new book of the Bible. How about that one? We're moving through uh, the Old Testament, and we just completed Esther. And so uh, we're now moving into, uh, you know, the poetry section of the Bible. Uh, And uh, that's probably, you know, from Job uh, through the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, however you want to say that. So that's where we are. We're, we're in the book of Job, and, and we're going to continue on and keep going. Somebody asked me the other day, what are we going to do about Psalms and Proverbs? We're still thinking about that. I don't know. I go fast, but I don't know, 150. So we'll have to figure out how we're going to do that and um, uh, see how that works. But uh, poetry, one-third of the Old Testament around is poetry. And this isn't poetry, as I mentioned on Sunday. This isn't rhyming and meter and all that sort of thing. Hebrew poetry is more about things like parallelism and putting things beside each other and contrasting and not really rhyming and uh, repetitive themes. And uh, so we're into that part of, um, of the book of the Bible. Some have even called uh, this part the wisdom uh, literature and Job being wisdom because it deals with like things like faith and suffering, right? And so uh, that's where we find ourselves. And so you turn there. You know this, I think, many of you do. This is most likely the oldest book of the Bible. It's probably. It may be, and many people believe it is, it's even older than the book of Genesis written-wise. Now, Genesis deals with topics that are older, get what I'm saying? But it's probably written, most people believe, as the first book of the Bible in terms of being the oldest. Who is Job? Don't have a lot of information uh, not a lot of information. We do know he's mentioned in Ezekiel 14, chapter or verse 14 and verse 20, and he's also uh, uh, mentioned by the Lord's half-brother James in James 5.11. So the point being is James is a real person. What did I say? Yeah, Job is a real person. He's a real person because, you know, there are people in Christendom that don't believe that, folks, that this is just some sort of poem and it's put in there to, you know, give you some pithy sayings or something. No, this was a real live person. And in fact, we're all going to come, have to come to a crossroads or grips with some things here over the next several weeks as we study this book. And you're all going to want to ask the question, What about this theological argument? What about that theological thing? And there's going to be some things that bother you. But I want you to see something. (laughs) God always does this. It's so beautiful. He tells us these amazing, majestic truths through a man. The man, a man, a life. God works out his story in the life of his people 
See, you should jump up and down about that one because you're his people. And God's working out his story in our lives. And here he comes and he tells us about Job. Guess what the uh, name Job means? It means hated. So some people, even though Job's mentioned in the book, believe that Job may, might be a nickname who's mentioned in other places. Uh, there is another form of the word Job or the name Job in Genesis, and some people believe that's the Job they're talking about. But whatever you believe, this is a real person, and we're going to learn about him tonight. Now, let me tell you a little story. You might not think it has anything to do with Job, but really it does. I, my family loved Christmas, okay? My dad grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, so he never had Christmas. But once he came out of uh, that movement, he loved it. And he always loved to, you know, make it special and <laughs> that sort of thing. And then my mom, who wanted to always go over the top, uh, uh, if you're watching this, mom, sorry. But um, she wanted to make it special, too. And so it was always special for us. And I can even remember, you know, Christmas Eve was always just a great time. You'd get up late. You didn't have to go to school. And you'd sit there and you'd wrap the presents and watch the Christmas shows. And that was wonderful. But we always did the same thing every Christmas Eve. Around 4 or 5 o'clock, everybody would go get dressed. And we'd dress, um, you know, up. Because we went to church in our Lutheran church, I forget, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. But before we got there, we had several stops. And the first stop was my mom, uh, I don't know, she befriended this lady through a ceramic class, and she had an adult son who loved Farmer's Almanac. So every year we had to take him the Farmer's Almanac for the next year. That's just what we did, right? It made us feel safe and secure doing, doing those same traditional things. And the next place we went, before we went to my grandma's house, and then after this next place that we went, then we'd go to my grandma's and we'd uh, have a great time at my grandma's down in her basement, and it was a great time, and fire, and the fire was roaring. And then you'd go off to Christmas Eve service, and then you'd come back to grandma's till one or two in the morning, and then you'd go home. And, but, but before we did that, we went to my dad's cousin's place. So we went to this place where we deliver the farmer's almanac around 5, 30, 6 o'clock, go over to this place <clears throat> that was my dad's cousin's. We hardly ever saw him. We lived in a small town, but never really saw him, maybe once in the summer, but always on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can remember doing that even in my earliest memories. And, uh, you know, there was always my dad's crazy uncle there who was just loud and, you know, probably uh, was in his cups a little bit and uh, would get real loud and, you know, you know, punch me in the arm and stuff. And I'm just a little boy and all that sort of thing. But, you know, my dad got to see his cousins and stuff. And as I grew a little older, <laughs> there was this young girl who was in the bed in the uh, room right off the living room. I never really knew it there for a couple years, but she was bedridden her whole life. She was my dad's cousin, or second cousin. And you know, when you're a little kid, that's kind of shocking at first, right? And I can remember thinking to myself, hmm, and, and I didn't really have much religious training, but thinking to myself, wow, why? You know, why her? Why not me? What's going to come of her life? And, and then you'd go a whole nother year, think about this, 
here you are, eight, you know, seven years old. You never see these folks too much, and you go back the next year, and there she'd be. And that happened year after year after year until, you know, I went off to college, and I think she passed away uh, that time. And you say to yourself, why? What's going on? And you know, what we're about ready to face here, <laughs> a lot of people have asked those questions. Is that true? Why? Why? And many people have gone through pain and suffering and heartache. All of it has come and touched your lives. And maybe you, like me, have asked that question, why? One of the interesting parts about this book is for those who love to have all the answers. My friend right there, she loves to have all the answers. As you might not get all the answers here. But there was this, I, I know my family makes fun of me, but it's the only way I know is to tell what I know. <laughs> there was this place in uh, Colorado when Jan and I went there this year. It was on our last day. I had to get up really early in the morning to get into the park early and beat the rush. And it was 4.30 in the morning that I started. And it was, I mean, it's way up there. I mean, way up there. It took a lot to get up there. You know, you're up at 12, 13,000 feet. And this was a real long walk. And I just went by myself. And 4.30 in the morning, and I get to the top up there. I mean, it's freezing, right? Freezing, cold. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, it, you know, it's only about a 9 or 10-mile hike. And that sounds long, but not there, really. It's not that long. It just goes so perfect. But I come around this corner, and it's hard to get up there. It's rocky, ledge there. You could fall off the ledge. But, you know, I didn't feel unsafe or anything. And I just come around the corner, and there's this vista. <laughs> I don't even know how to tell you what this vista was like. There's this, I have a picture of that corner. Down in the picture, there's this little peewee little circle, and it's a lake. But that lake is mammoth when you get down to it. And I came around that picture, and it was just so beautiful. But here was the funny part. I, I had to be back uh, to the apartment that we were staying in by 11 o'clock, so I had to really move, right? And so I get around that corner, and it's rocky, and I'm cold and freezing. And actually, I met up with a guy, and he and I are looking as we're like, whoa, this is amazing. <clears throat> and then, but I, we had to rush, so we just rushed. And we got back to our tram, got in the cars, and went back. And it was so beautiful, but... It was hard to get to, and it was difficult, and it was so beautiful, I keep thinking to myself, man, I didn't even scratch the surface of the beauty up there. I'm going to have to go back. And that's the book of Job. <laughs> you know who uh, Lord Tennyson was, the great poet in England? He said, this is the greatest poem, just literature, that there ever is or ever was. And you're going to come face to face with some questions, some thoughts, some things, especially here in the first couple chapters, that you're really going to have to think about. I'm going to have to think about. We're going to have to think about. And you're not going to be able to just go one time. That's the point. 
you're going to have to keep going. I think that's why in the New Testament it says that we're to rightly divide the word. Yeah, it's great to come here and... The, the, of course, the pastor, he's supposed to, you know, un break down the stuff for you and, you know, help in teaching you. But, you know, where the real work happens is when you go home every day, every morning, evening and morning and, and learning and, and learning to go by that corner again and look and search it out and go up there. It takes effort to get up there. That's Job. So here we are. Job, written a long time ago, first book written of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? The first old or the oldest book of the Bible, and you come face to face with these deep theological questions like, is God sovereign or not? Is he really in control? I hear a lot of people say it but I don't see a lot of people live it, including myself a lot of the time. I see a lot of people say God's in control, but I don't see a lot of people basing their whole life on the fact that he is in control. So do we believe it or not? Maybe what we're going to find is that what we thought we find, what we would find, isn't really what <laughs> we're going to find, if that makes sense. So here, let's go right to chapter 1. Job, the word of the Lord. There was a man in the land of Uz. <laughs> Think of a certain movie when I read that. But there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. You see why I say it's about a man? The writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just wants you to know the man. And he, and seven sons, he shunned evil, and seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man, underline it, was the greatest of all the people of the East, and some people believe he was a king of some sort. Verse 4, and his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. They loved each other, folks. The, the, the kids did. Note that. Somehow this family unit was doing it right. And they loved each other. They didn't leave a kid out or a sister out or a brother out. They, they loved each other. And they'd come together on like the appointed days, like birthdays or some of the great days that they marked and eat together. So it was, verse 5, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Hmm. 
And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from go, listen, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on the earth, on it. Sound familiar? It should. First Peter chapter 5 says, Satan looks who to devour. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, God looks continually throughout all the earth for people whose hearts open to him that he could pour his power and life into and so that they could go and live out his story. That's what God's looking for. But the great imitator or the false imitator, what's he do? He looks not to empower he looks to devour. In verse 8 here, the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? <clears throat> we'll talk about that word considered. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating, drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they've killed the servants, which the edge of the sword. And I have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. Another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away. Yes, killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, verse 18, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. <clears throat> and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now mark this. Then Job arose, tore his robe. He was sad. He was grieving. He was hurt. He was... He tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. And I wouldn't have put this word in here if I was writing the story. This isn't probably how I would have written, written it. I would have, couldn't imagine. I can't imagine. He fell and he worshipped. Let that sit there for a minute. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. And the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. How about this one, folks? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember when we sing that song? What are we singing it in the context of? Job being circumstantially devastated. In all this, Job didn't sin nor charge God with wrong. Now let's just unpack this a little bit. We don't exactly know where Uz is. Most people believe it's in Edom. Remember? Edomites from Esau. Jacob and Esau. Remember those guys? Esau becomes the Edomites, and they settle, if Israel's a rectangle, kind of at the bottom of Israel, in between Israel, Edom, and Arabia. So they're down to the south. 
probably even Eliphaz, one of his friends, is associated with Edom, and we know that from other places. So probably Edom, although nobody's for 100% sure, okay? And his name is Job. And the writer is quick to tell us that he was both blameless and upright because he's setting us up for the question you're all asking yourself or you're all thinking. See, in ancient times, people believed if you did good and you were good and you'll be good, you get good. But if you do bad and you rebel against God and you're a sinner, you're going to get bad. And so people could just look at your life and say, oh, sinner, oh, good one. And Job, or the writer here in Job, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is making us, making all of us come face to face with that question. What about the person who's been to 52 Bible studies this year? Because I think, a lot of us think, 52 Bible studies, God, you owe me. I, I... clean every week here at the church. I teach. I play the guitar. I set up the chairs. I clean the toilets. Lord, I've been doing a great thing for you this year. I need some payback. Now, we don't say it that way, but that's what we think. And when something circumstantially bad, quote-unquote bad, comes into our life, we think, what have I, what's going on here, Lord? I've been here 52 weeks in a row. I've been to the prayer meetings. I've given money back there. So we come face to face with that question. Does suffering happen to righteous people? immediately right here off the bat. He's blameless and he's upright. Blameless doesn't mean he's sinless. We know that he couldn't be that. But he's upright and blameless. He's complete. He's mature. He has integrity. And so because of this relationship, he's upright. He's a straight shooter. People respect him in the community. And how has this happened? Because he has an appropriate fear of God, a respect, an awe, a wonder at God. He wants to obey God as best as he can. He respects the things that God stands for. And when evil rears its ugly head, look at this. You guys might just run by this. He goes away from it. He shuns it. He doesn't participate in the evil things. And you say, okay, well, I don't do that. Okay, well, let's Look at your Netflix account (laughs) or your phone history or whatever. Here he shuns evil and he has seven sons and three daughters that are born to him. I mean, you understand that the writer is telling us all about the man and his life and his possessions were those many. There's lots of possessions there, folks, and he has a, a large household. And see, most people believe this is before the Mosaic law. It probably took place in the patriarchal period, but before the law. Why? 
Because the dad himself is the one doing the sacrifices. So maybe no priesthood established yet. I realize they live maybe in Edom, but whatever. Many people believe that's why this is so early. But you were considered not only a blessed person, but a a person who couldn't be touched circumstantially because you had a large household, you had lots of money, and you were upright and blameless, a lot of beautiful children. Everything was fruitful and prosperous. And that's what the writer is trying to tell you here. This man was the greatest of all the people of the East, and his kids, when they grew up, they stayed together and they loved one another. And don't we love that when that happens with our kids? Yes. And when feasting had run their course, listen to this. Job would have them over or be around them, and in the morning he would intercede for his kids just in case. Isn't this, oh my gosh, isn't this convicting? Just in case they cursed God or committed a sin or something, there the dad was interceding for sons and daughters, 10 of them, morning and night. Man, this guy cared and wanted to walk with the Lord. Do you see that? And he cared about other people, and he wanted them to walk with the Lord. This is a beautiful guy. Job did this regularly, and there was a day when these sons of God, now this is fascinating. You realize now, in chapter 6 here, and some of the rest of this chapter, do you realize this? At the time that these things are happening to Job, He don't know what's going on in heaven. We get a glimpse here of something that's taking place in the presence of the Lord that Joseph, or Joseph, Job isn't privy to. Think about that. No explanation. No view into the drama. And what is that? that's taking place. There's a day when these sons of God, probably angelic beings. By the way, Peter, the book of Peter tells us that angels look over and are looking for salvation. They want to see it. They want to see the things of God. It interests them. And so they're peering over. Always think of that Forbes Field picture where they're looking down on the World Series. That's, That's what the angels are like. But but hundreds of thousands of these angels. And here, there's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. They have access to the Lord, of course. And Satan, which means adversary, that's what his name means. Isn't that funny? That's kind of a legal term. Jesus is the great advocate, or our great advocate, 1 John. But anyway, he's the adversary. And Folks, he has access to God. (laughs) This isn't the only place where we see that. There's a couple other places, including in the book of Revelation. I think it's chapter 12, verse 10, where it says Satan has access to God, and his purpose in life is to accuse you people and me, us together, as brothers and sisters. He's accusing us day and night before the Lord. He has access to heaven. 
You ask me, why is that? Here's my response. I don't know. But he does. So here, Satan's there. And God says to him, where are you coming from? Like the Lord doesn't know. He does know. And he says something that's very, very interesting. <laughs> Warren Wearsby talks about this in his book. If you want to get the best book on spiritual warfare, it is the best book. It's the clearest book. It's not weird. It's not out there. It's just straightforward. Just get The Strategy of Satan by Warren Wearsby. Just get it. Little book. Fantastic. What's one of the things that the enemy is doing right now, right this second? He's roaming the earth. By the way, how does he do it? I want you to know this. Please get this out of your mind. Satan isn't the counterpart to God. Satan's not omniscient, omnipotent. He's none of those things. God's that. Satan's a created being that fell because he wanted to set himself up as God, a beautiful, worshipful angel who wanted to set himself up, Ezekiel and Isaiah tell us, and they fell. And one of the things that Satan does is he goes back and forth on the earth, he walks back and forth on it. How does he do it? Through his minions, through his associates, and they study people. Do you know this? How do I know that? Because God here uses a word, consider. Have you considered my servant Job? Job? <laughs> I can't even say his name. I don't even know who I'm talking about, no. And it's a word that's like spying on somebody. That's taking notes. That's entering it into the Excel spreadsheet. My goodness, when that guy gets tired and he's done with ministry, <laughs> he's susceptible. Note that. Uh, when she drives through Nevillewood and sees those other houses and then looks at the size of her houses, she's susceptible. Note it. Put it in her file. We'll try to get her there as much as we can. When they see the Lexus and then they look down at their Pinto, they get mad. Let's see if we can ramp up the covetousness. And... That's what the Bible tells us. He's looking, he's going back and forth on the earth. He's in heaven accusing you. He's down here with his army trying to get you to fall and me to fall. One, to keep us from salvation. That's what the angels look over heaven to see. But if he can't do that, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, he wants to totally demolish and wipe out your witness so that you can't bring anybody else. And one of the ways that he does it, the first way he does it, the very first way he does it, is he strikes at your wallet. <laughs> Come on, folks. We all love to be comfortable. And I'm going to tell you something. Every one of you in here, we are all rich. You say to yourself, no, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, you are. Just cruise on down to the middle of Jamaica, not the outer parts of Jamaica, the inner part of Jamaica. Go there. Go into some of the Latin American countries. Go over into some different continents. We're rich. So what he says is, these things. Satan goes to the Lord 
He says, you, you considered my servant Job. See, God's not surprised. He just knows who Job is. And so what does the adversary immediately do? What does he immediately do? He does what he did in the Garden of Eden. He asks a question. He asks you questions. He says stuff like this. Do you really think those people at that church care for you? No, nobody called you this week to see how you were doing. Do you really think people care for you? You had these sorts of thoughts and that sort of thought. Why would, what would make you think you could even step foot back in that church? And these are all lies. And you could just keep going on and on. Or, or how about this one? No one cares about me. I'm here, I'm all alone. Nobody cares. It's, it's all a lie. And they come to us and they ask, or he asks questions. He has his minions ask questions. And here, look at this, look at this. He asks a question of the Lord. Lord's not, the Lord's not surprised. He knows. He says, spy out Job. In other words, many people call this a battle here between Satan and and God, and maybe it is a little bit of a battle, and the battlefield is the life of Job, but it's more of a testing. Why is it not a battle? Because here's why. If I was Eisenhower, I didn't call the, the commander of the Nazis and say, hey, you think uh, I can come over and attack you now? Hold on. Here, though, the Lord says, I'll let you do these things. This isn't a battle. This is a testing. <laughs> it may seem like a battle is being played out, but there's something here that's a testing. And here, he says, you consider my servant Job, that there is none like him on all the earth. He's an upright man who fears God's son's evil. And God, or Satan answered the Lord and said, listen, a question. The blasphemy of all blasphemies. And you're going to say, really? Does Job love you for who you are or because you give him stuff? That's what God asks him. Or that's what Satan asks him. That's what Satan asks him. Think about it. And I want, to, I want you to search your hearts. Do you love God because he's God or because he gives you stuff? See, one of the great things that we're trying to do here at the church and all together in our walk together, you know what we're trying to do? Just what the theme of Narrow Way is. We're trying to treasure Christ above all. And we say that and we do that. But see, here in Job, you come face to face with it. God bless you. Would you treasure Christ God, through Christ, above all. Would you do that? God says, hey, consider my servant Job. And, and, the, and Satan says, yeah, that's all well and good, but he only loves you because you do stuff for him, God. If you don't do stuff for him, like if you take a hedge of protection from him, you take out his household on every side, you, if you uh, take away the blessing of his work or his possessions and in the increase of his land, if you stretched out your hand and touched all that he has, 
he's going to curse you, Lord. That's what Satan says. Now think about it. Here at the beginning of all the books of the Bible, you come face to face with, do we love God or do we love the gifts? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So so this has got to tell you something before we even move on. Here's first lesson number one. We need to push our joy and happiness outside, if I can say it this way, just move it outside the realm of our circumstances. Or maybe I'll say it a different way. Maybe we bring the joy inside our hearts and our lives where no circumstance can touch the joy. So that if the circumstance is played out out here and they go crappy, sorry for the vernacular, or they go amazing, it doesn't really matter. Because our joy is untouchable. You catching it? And right off the bat, the first lesson I think we learn here is, without even going into the rest of the story yet, is that somehow, some way, we got to get joy outside of our circumstances. You see, because I live in a world where a lot of people come talk to me, and a lot of times people's lives are like this. It's like being at Kennywood. How you doing? Oh, man, I'm so great. What a service. Oh, it's amazing. Praising the Lord. Monday morning, text them. How you doing? Oh, can't believe it. My boss looked at me wrong. I'm fractured. I don't think he likes me. Text him at noon. How you doing? Oh, great. I listened to some worship and I studied the word. Fantastic. Text him at three. How you doing? Terrible. Why? Why is that? Because their joy is tied up. It's played out on the table where the rest of the circumstances are instead of removing it from that. And listen, listen. That's what treasuring Christ is. It's loving God for who he is in his beautiness, in his holiness. Just him. Not because, oh man, I I got into the program. I got the bonus. Well, guess what, folks? Someday you might not get the bonus, and somebody you don't like might get the bonus ahead of you. What, are you going to say God's not good then? Because the Bible tells us that rain falls on the just and the unjust. (laughs) If anybody tells you that you're immune to suffering as a righteous person, they can't be reading the same Bible we are. Does the enemy always send the suffering? Well, in this case, he has. We'll see it here in a minute. Sometimes, though, folks, we just live in a world where things happen. We had an unfortunate, terrible accident here on Sunday. I mean, I don't know. I'm not 
all-knowing and all-wise, but I think somebody tripped, and it's sad and awful, but I don't think a devil tripped anybody. I think they just tripped. Sometimes the Lord sends testings into our lives. He sends them himself. But in this case, I want you to see something. The devastation here is caused by demonic activity. God, somehow, you're going to have, here, here you come, you're coming right to face to face with a tough theological problem. God, somehow, he's sovereign, he permits all things to happen, yet inside that permission, there's free moral agents. That's you and I. And you're going to have temptations. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And you're going to choose one or the other because you're free and moral. Otherwise, there would really not be any love in the world. So I would say, isn't this interesting? The mere fact that there's evil in the world screams to you that God is love. You say, what? Yeah, because God lovingly gave us choice. Otherwise, what would love be? If you knew I was forcing Jan to stay married to me, what would you think? Or, yeah, what would you think? You say, I don't know. But even in the tough times and the bad times, when we don't even feel like it, I mean, I always feel like it, but when we don't feel like it, that's still choosing. See, that's real love. So, number one, what do we learn from this? Well, we learn a couple things. God is sovereign. He's great. He's awesome. Satan is a created being. He's not on the same level as God. He has access to the heavenlies right now. He's going to get kicked out of there. See Revelation study. Well, that's for another day. What does the enemy want to do to you? He wants to ask you questions to hit fiery darts into your brain so that you'll start doubting the goodness of God. It also tells us that we don't want to get our joy tied up in the things that we have. In other words, you're a steward. I'm a steward of everything I have. Listen, folks, listen, including my children. We often say they're ours, and yes, in one sense, they are ours, but they're really the Lord's. Here, here's what happens. Does Job fear God for nothing? Why don't you do this? Take away all the things. Will he love you, or will he love the gifts? Will he treasure you above all else, or will there be other treasures that creep in? And the first thing that he does, by the way, the Lord limits him. You can't put anything on Job here now. So the enemy obeys because he has to, because God's sovereign. So there was a day, and his sons and daughters are eating, and you see it. The first thing he does is he strikes at his wallet. You say, oh, that doesn't really bother me. Uh-huh. You have somebody break into your bank account and steal 150 bucks, and I'll see how bad or how much it doesn't matter to you. People freak when that happens, and I don't blame you, to be honest. But, right? 
Somebody comes in, nabs some of your money out of your bank account, you ain't a happy camper. And no, nobody wants that to happen. But, or how about this? You, you don't, you know, you, maybe you're not in business as far along as you wanted to be by the time you were 40 or 54 like me. And you say, well, Lord, how come he is? And right? God or the enemy strikes at your wallet, your finances. He takes them away, maybe. He raids them and brings them out, kills the servants with the edge of the sword. Can you imagine the people that Job loved, even the servants that waited on his kids? And then the fire of God, which isn't really true. You know, everybody, all of you folks have uh, insurance. Isn't this one just make you so mad? The rain comes and floods your house, and you call the insurance company. They say, up. Oh. Act of God, no coverage. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, that's kind of, unless, of course, you buy the insurance for the act of God. Of course, they have that for sale. But, but that's kind of what he's saying here. Fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them, and I escaped. So even more, more of his stock and more of his servants. And the Chaldeans, they come and get the camels. That was, like the, that was like the Lamborghini of livestock or animals back then, was having a camel. That meant you were really wealthy and they could because they could travel and go long places or on long trips. And the camels took them away, killed the servants. And while he was still speaking here, the devastating one, I mean, folks, listen, it's just even hard to say. You ever lose one child? But here this guy loses 10. And his poor wife, we give it to his wife a lot in this story, but man, the poor thing. You see, but somehow, someway, Job had got it to the place, folks, where his joy and his praise and his happiness, doesn't have to be happy about it, but, but you understand, even though all of those are devastating, and they are devastating, somehow his inner peace and joy was going to main, stay out of his circumstances. And he says, he did, he's sad, he's grieving, of course he is, of course we would do that, but he knew immediately how to silence the enemy was to worship. God sent him to worship. That's what God was referring to when he said, you have, have you ever considered Job here? You've studied him, well, this is a man who worship even when times are tough. And he says, listen, I look back. I came naked from my mother's womb and naked I'm going to return. I can't take anything into eternity that I earned here. But I know this, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Everything he had, he acknowledged was from the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He's a steward of his children. He's a steward of his finances. He's a steward of his business. He's a steward of his servants and the people he employed. Let me turn you somewhere. Turn over to the book of uh, 1 Peter here. 1, 7. Man, this guy's in the crucible, isn't he? 1 Peter 1.7, sorry, I'm going slow, I'll get there. 
It's worth it to read this for us, I think. You all know the verse, but remember this now. And maybe we'll go in uh, six. In this you greatly rejoice. <laughs> By the way, who? Come on, man. This has to be heavenly. Who would write this outside of the Lord? I, I can't imagine anybody. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Job's in the fire, folks, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> You say you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and yes, you do, and yes, we do. Yes, we know he's the only way we get back to God by the payment of our sins, reconciling us back to the Father. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's something more precious than getting the paycheck, buying the house, establishing the white picket fence, going on vacations, playing our hobbies, and then doing it all again the next week. There's way more. We're in the middle of a story that's so big. God is saying, I'm going to bring you to the place where you might be in the fire. You prob you're going to be put into the fire. And I want you to know that my end goal of you being in the fire is that you would praise and honor and glory no matter what. Because that is one proof. That's one way. that you and I know that you don't just love the gifts. <laughs> and so, his kids, and he worshiped, and all this he didn't sin nor charge God with wrong. And then there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Well, see, it didn't work for Satan. It didn't work. But Satan is relentless, folks. He doesn't stop. Until he gets put away, he's going to try and try. He doesn't give up. So he came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where do you come? And he answered, from going to and fro on the earth, walking back and forth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered Job? There's none like him on the earth, blameless, upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. And he, still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. That's the end goal of Satan, right? He lives to murder, steal, lie, destroy, wreck. So Satan answered the Lord and said, isn't this funny? Skin for skin. We're going to up the ante here. He goes, skin for skin. What Satan is saying here is, as bad as all of that stuff is, when you threaten a person with their own skin, you do something to him, he'll, he'll curse you. Most important thing to Job is his self and his health. Well, 
Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Notice that. He had to give him permission, but spare his life. You can't kill him. So Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord, strikes him with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And as we go through this book, there's a lot of other things that symptoms. He was shaking, he was trembling. Lots of other things. And he took himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Now think about the dump heap. This is the dump where he's sitting. Among other things, what did they put in the dump? Human waste. Here you go. Circumstantially, he's gone from the greatest man to the east, in the east to sitting on the dung heap. And he's got all these boils, and it's miserable. And then maybe the possibly one of the worst things that could happen to him, the one he loves. The one he loves. Breaks ranks with him. And I'm not criticizing her. It could be man or woman. I'm not saying because it's a lady, but the wife here, not, not because she's a woman, but, but the spouse here, the one he holds dear, the one he cares most about, what she thinks, says, this is silly. You're going to hold fast your integrity when you got boils and running sores and you're sitting in the excrement? Just come on, curse God and die. In other words, she said, you'd be better off dead than suffering like this. That's what his wife just said. Whew. You imagine the emotional and spiritual, mental turmoil he must be in right here. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Now listen, I don't think he's criticizing there. I think he's gentle with her here. And what he's saying is, you speak as if somebody who doesn't know the Lord. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You're, you're speaking as if somebody who doesn't know the Lord, honey. And that's a great lesson there. Isn't that a great lesson between people who care about each other? Be careful what you say. We're going to learn here from the ones who... Uh, turn out not to have such great advice. They start out great. They just come and sit with the guy. Seven days. Don't say a word. Sometimes you just need that, right? Here, she talks as if she doesn't know the Lord. And he says, you're foolish, not in a mean way, I don't think, in a gentle way. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job didn't sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of this adversity that had come upon him, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from far off and didn't recognize him, they lifted their voice. Why do you think they didn't recognize him? Because he was in such bad shape, folks. They lifted their voices and wept. What good friends there. They're crying for their friend. Remember, he's the greatest man in the East. He must have had tons of acquaintances and friends. Three come. 
And so they weep, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven, and they sat down with him on the ground seven days, seven nights, and no one spoke a word to them, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now listen, I'm not a counselor, but when people are in crisis, don't think you have to give them some great pithy saying that they'll take away and they'll be cured forever. Maybe what we should do is just do what the Bible says some. Cry with those who cry. Mourn with those who mourn. Just hug them. Tell them you love them. If you don't know what to say, just be there. Fix them a meal. Hold their hand and be with them. Well, I gave you a handout. <laughs> Should have mentioned that at the beginning. Keep that handout. Keep it in your Bible. It's kind of the outline here of, of Job. And the first part of Job is this. There's a dilemma that Job is in. And it makes you come face to face with several theological questions. Is God in control or is he not? Do righteous people have bad things or, uh, happen to them or not? And I think one of the things that we do as we travel this, and I'm going to tell you something. I'm praying as much as you can. I know schedules get involved, and I, I totally understand, and this is just not a pastor trying to get the numbers up. I, I would say keep coming to this. Here's why. Because I think one of the great things that we're going to study over the next several weeks is this. The surest way, one pastor said, to waste your pain, excuse me, the surest way to waste your pain is to believe that it's meaningless. You want me to say that again? The surest way to waste your pain is to believe that your pain is meaningless. See, you make a false assumption. I make a false assumption. We say stuff like this. God is good. I'm one of his children. Therefore, only good things will come to me, and if anything bad comes to me, God must not be good. Did you track with what I said right there? You make, and I make, and we make a terrible assumption right there. We assumed when a bad thing came that God wasn't good. When in all actuality, oftentimes, bad things come, and when they come, we don't want to say, how do I get out of this? We ought to be saying, as Warren Wearsby says, what should I get out of this? Not how do I get out of this, what should I get out of this? And you say, wait a second, hold on. But remember what we read in 1 Peter. There's a purpose in your pain. Man, is that hard to say, standing up here. Because... I know people are in pain right here in this room. But I think if you'll stick with it, Job, I think if you'll stick with it, if you'll keep coming back, if you'll come to the corner and just sit there a while instead of me and rushing off, if you just watch and look and think and ask the Holy Spirit to help you, you're going to see that your pain 
can be an opportunity to grow. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here tonight, and we thank you for Job. (laughs) It's almost funny to say. (laughs) But, Lord, we do. We pray, and I hear the prayers. I pray them. Make us more like you, Lord. And you were one who was willing to suffer and die. You were rich and became poor. Job was rich and became poor. You were rich and became poor, and now you make us rich as you sit us in the heavenlies. So, Lord, I just pray that we would continue to look on your word as we begin to understand as much as we can this book, this old book that touches our hearts. And, Lord, I would pray that you would give us the answer to why Job doesn't give us all the answers before we're done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.